Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. What's up, everyone? Thank you for coming to hang out with us here on Reppin'. I'm Evelyn, your host. We have a great guest today. His first major role was opposite David Carradine and Daryl Hannah in the two-part TV movie Kung Fu Killer. He's gone on to portray fan favorite Kevin Tran on the hit Supernatural. Also, he was Ryan Choi in the Arrowverse and was featured during three of the Crisis on Infinite Earths episodes. His other credits include Dirk's Gently Holistic Detective Agency and Demon X. Today, Osric Chow is here. Hey, Osric. So these are strange times. Um, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing, actually, I'm doing really well. Well, I really want to thank you for being here. So tell me a little bit about yourself. I mean, your background, your heritage, a little bit about your experiences growing up. I am Canadian, Chinese descent. My mom's Malaysian, but she's also Chinese, so Chinese Malaysian. I grew up in Vancouver, Canada. I was in the French immersion program and I was actually very fortunate. I was in a very international class of kids um, at my high school. They, they were very proud of the fact that we had 86 different countries represented in our student body. And this was something that I didn't really appreciate until much, much later on. And in terms of what that actually meant for diversity, but I do, I mean, talking about representation and all that, one of the things that I do remember one of my earliest, like, you know, when you drive through like a tunnel and you'd hold your breath and you'd like wish to four things, you know, like, okay, if I can hold my breath, I, I would play this game a lot. Or like, you know, your birthday, you'd like wish for things. At one point, somewhere in my teens, I had, I recognized that all of the things that I was wishing for, essentially, like I was just wishing to be a white guy. And it was such a weird thing to like kind of realize and I didn't I never noticed how weird it was but I'm like man like since I was a kid I always just wanted to be some white dude and it's because you know all of the coolest people that I saw growing up are all white people or white characters even in the cartoons even like you know Dragon Ball which is a Japanese anime like you know Super Saiyan you know if you know the Chinese of it it's right, right. a super westerner so that idea of being white meaning being superior was just like ingrained in my head from from an early age and it wasn't until I recognized that I'm like wow that's really messed up I definitely need to shake this and I kind of had to reprogram myself and my own thinking to not think that because it was like so subconscious at that point how old were you at that point and what made you realize that you wanted to be white? And just to let you know, oddly enough, I also wanted to be blonde yep. and to have more of a nose bridge mm -hmm. and, you know, just have more of an American nose. But for you, what age did you sort of realize that you were wanting to be white and then you realized, you know, that something was off about that? <laughs> um, 
it was unfortunately after high school, uh, so it was kind of late. But uh, there was a couple of things. One, I, I with my girlfriend at the time, I had gotten into this. Uh, this dis- was a discussion about plastic surgery. Like, oh, if you had to get anything done, and for me, it was like I'm like oh, I don't like the idea of plastic surgery. But if I had to do something again, it was like the nose thing, right? And like I have a very Asian nose. I'm like, oh, you know, I always like the you know like the longer pointy or whatever. And then I started asking like, oh, why? Why though? And then you start asking why and you, you, know, you kind of go into this wormhole of, oh, wait, that's a really underlying reason. Of course, I mean, that didn't happen right away. It, it happened way later. Um, but it was a lot of things. I had a discussion with my roommates about, just about girls. And I, I remember distinctly thinking I'm like, man, I never saw Asian women as attractive. And throughout my high school years anyways. And like, it was just something that like never really, I don't know, wasn't on my radar. And then when I really thought about it and we had a discussion, all of a sudden like, oh my God, I was such an idiot. Why did I even like think that? I'm like, I never thought of Asian people as attractive, period. Not even, not just Asian women. And then of course, you know, I, I started dating an Asian girl. I started living in China. And then like, I just got to see all of these weird inconsistencies in in my thought process. I'm like, why did I even think this? Like, none of this makes sense. And being in the media, I started looking into, you know, all of those subconscious thoughts that would be in my brain. I'm like, why did I think this? This is why I thought this. And that's why, like, representation matters so much to me. I recognize that, okay, like, us figureheads in the media, in film, TV, news, whatever it is, like, all we're doing is we're we're present. And what that means is sometimes we create something that is so damn cool that you know we're we're not just trendsetters. We're literally creating the culture that we want to be in. And part of the reason why I went to Asia is because I had I had so many of my my friends and my family's like, okay, well if you want to do this acting thing, you should go where there's Asian characters. They didn't know the industry, but they knew that there weren't any Asian characters in America or Canada at the time anyway. So I moved to China. And one of the things that I recognized really quickly is, I mean, it was really cool and I was fortunate to work a lot, but I was seen as an outsider there too, right? So I'm like, okay, well, if I'm a, an outsider where I came from and I'm an outsider in my homeland, like where the hell do I belong? So were you too American for them? I mean, I was Canadian, but yeah, you know, like my Chinese wasn't perfect. You know, I have very westernized uh, values and thought process. Like there's there's so many things like I thought I was I used to be the Chinese kid. Yeah, I get right. It. I would represent China. We would do social studies class and I would do my like the China section. That was me. And then I go to China. I'm like, whoa, I'm not Chinese. I'm very Canadian. And it's such a weird realization. But at some point, you kind of have to figure it out. And so I did. And I'm like, okay, well, as much as I would love to have a career here in China, if I really look deep down in myself and what I want to do, like my heritage is Chinese, but my culture is very much on the Western side of things. I'm neither here nor there. I'm a little bit of both. I am Asian Canadian, Asian American. We all share such similar backgrounds and childhoods of being in both places at the same time, but neither places at the same time. And so I, th- I think that's when I really clicked for me. And then, you know, I had an opportunity to move back and I did. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm also super stubborn. I'm like, okay, well, it still doesn't exist here, but I have to be part of creating it. I don't just want to wait around for it to happen and then me to hop on. No, I want to be part of 
the leaders who are leading the charge into into this new era that we're going into. So again, I can relate to you because um, I was born in New York, but a long time ago, I went back to Hong Kong and China to visit with my parents. I was supposed to meet my parents at a restaurant and I got lost in the streets of Hong Kong. And I asked an officer where this restaurant was in Chinese. Um, now I can speak Chinese, but I can't read or write. Um, so I asked him where this restaurant was and he said, well, it's right there. Can't you see it? And I sort of was like, uh, is it the red sign or the blue sign? He literally left me in the streets because he didn't know what to make of me. So it was a really strange experience. So how did you find your footing when you went back to China? Like if this were stocks and investments, I'm on the riskier side of things with my own life. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because of just the way I think. I don't think it's that risky, but like I look back sometimes I'm like, holy crap, I can't believe I did that. But the thing that really made the move for me in China, it, I mean, it was a lot of things, but I watched this movie called Yes Man with Jim Carrey. And this guy was just basically saying yes to everything. And all these amazing things happen. I mean, all terrible things happen, but amazing things happen as well. That's pretty much the moral of the story is that we focus on the negative. And so I had watched that and my agent just got back to me. He's like, hey, the Olympics are coming into town in Vancouver. So the film industry is going to shut down for like six months. So I don't know what you want to do, but you know, everything's kind of going to be not working for a while. Maybe you want to consider going to China. And I said, yes. And two weeks later, I was in Beijing and it was like such a crazy thing. I didn't really tell my parents right away. So they were kind of shocked. I didn't tell my girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, to like was pretty much leaving. Oh, There's a lot of um, questionable decisions that I made, but I got there. Also, I had no idea what I was going to do there. I didn't know where I was going to live. I still didn't speak Chinese at that point. There, <laughs> there were so many things. And one thing that I learned was that I am capable of adapting. And I think this is a, a massive lesson for me moving forward is that I realized, I'm like, okay, even if you go into this country where you don't speak the language, you're going to figure it out. And so I, I kind of made a conscious decision not to hang out with any foreigners the first month. And thankfully, I ended up in an area where there weren't that many. Wow. And so I had this daily conversation book that I didn't even open leading up to the trip, even though I knew I was going to China and I didn't speak Chinese. And as soon as I landed, I basically had to like sign language, like my way <laughs> into renting an apartment and stuff. And it was so painful that I would like read this conversation book every single day. I would read a chapter. I would go out to like the grocery stores, the taxi cabs, and I would start using everything I learned in that chapter. And then the next day I would do another chapter and so on and so forth. And by the end of the month, I remembered having my first like real conversation with a cab driver where I didn't have to say, it's like, okay, that's all the Chinese I know, which is how pretty much every conversation went up until that point. But we had the full conversation and then he dropped me off. I'm like, oh, I did it. I made it to the oh, end. That's awesome. <laughs> it was such like a really nice feeling. But basically you just learn all these bits and pieces of conversation. Like, hey, my name is Osric. I'm an actor. This is how old I am. This is where I'm from. My dad does this, my mom does that, my brother does this, my other brother does that. I'm in China now. Like you just like learn different parts of conversation. And then at some point, you know, so many parts that you can just bounce around to different parts, depending on where it's going. And, and that's how I learned Chinese. But apart from that, I loved it. Yeah. I love China, the, the culture there, just how, how social everything is, just how, how everyone hustled. I don't know if you spent much time in China ever, but 
Beijing is actually Beijing is very similar to New York. Yes. It's very fast paced. Like you it's can, nonstop. Yeah. Nonstop, 24 hour city. Like I go out, you do like 10 different meetings and you're like, all right, what's next? In LA, you do like two yeah. and everyone's like, oh man, I can't believe what a big, crazy day we've had. And <laughs> I hate that of LA, actually. <laughs> That's because you're driving in a car for like an hour. But when I came back, honestly, I felt like everyone was moving in slow motion and I was sprinting. And like that feeling of I'm here to work. I'm not here to vacation. I'm not here to go to the beach. I'm here to get shit done. That always stuck to me. And so I think being in Beijing and China, it taught me how to work. It taught me how to not wait on anyone, not to rely on anyone. It taught me to figure things out. It is the wild, wild east there. And I agree. And I'm going to speak in broad strokes here. I think a lot of this way of doing things comes from an Asian mindset um, or really comes from an immigrant mindset. You know, you come here for a better life, better opportunities. So let's get it done. You know, you can't wait for things to be handed to you. And if you really want something, you really, really have to go out and work for it. Do you feel that that's sort of a cultural um, value system that you that you've, you saw there and it sort of deepened? Um the main differences in values is just how I think it's Asia in general or most Asian countries. It's uh, it's a very family orientated, community orientated, community first, your legacy first beyond like the here and now. Like everything is deferred gratification. Whereas, you know, on the Western side, it's very much like instant gratification, individualistic. There's, you know, Pluses and minuses on both sides of that. But, you know, I think my favorite moments just in life, just being able to appreciate people and and that human connection has all been in Asia. The first birthday party that I went to in China was this cafeteria worker. Cafeteria workers, they don't even make a dollar a day at the time and in that area. Like they were not even making a dollar a day. Right. Because, I mean, you can eat for like stupidly cheap. I had, I think my breakfast was like five cents maybe. Right. So they're making pennies. Their job pays room and board. And I think they have a little bit that they can send to their family. But one of of these cafeteria ladies invited me and a couple of my friends to her birthday party. And the birthday party was in the in the kitchen, in the back of the cafeteria. And it was just all of us sitting on these like cartons. And this is a major different thing uh, for birthday parties in Asia. It's the birthday person that gets to pay. Like that's the present. They will purchase the most expensive experience that they can and have everyone come in and they get to feel like the big boss for that day, right? The, the idea of fighting for the bill, this is the day that no one fights you for the bill. And so for this cafeteria lady, what that meant was she bought every single person there a drink. And so she bought every single person a beer. Oh, wow. I don't drink. So she bought me a Sprite. And like, I'm like, holy crap. She literally saved up all year. Like, this is the money that they didn't send back to her family for her birthday party. And this is what she could afford. And it was like the happiest I'd ever seen her. I'm like, wow. You know, just being able to be grateful for the opportunity to be able to buy all of your friends like a, a penny drink each was just so powerful for me. And like, man, like that's the kind of life I, I want to be able to live is just to appreciate all of those things so much. And I think that's, that's one major setback of having this individualistic um, priority is that it, it's hard for us to appreciate 
all the little things that we have. It's hard to for us to appreciate that like our, our parents, if they're healthy, that they're healthy. Right. The fact that they're still alive, the fact that they're all of those little things. And I feel like that lack of gratitude is definitely correlated to the lesser amount of happiness that's around here. You know, the people are definitely poor in Asia, but they were much happier, even in the worst circumstances. And I think it's just that the level of gratitude that's kind of ingrained in the culture of being able to appreciate all these little things because of what you're able to do for everyone else in their circumstances. And here we're constantly comparing ourselves to the next person up there or whoever's, you know, in the stratosphere. You're right. I, it's just been a minute since I, you know, thought about or was reminded that the Asian culture really values being able to take care of the ones around you. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I want to go back to something that you had said earlier, which I wanted to ask you. When you wanted to be in the entertainment industry, for me personally, I didn't see anyone that looked like me in my neighborhood and certainly not in the media. So when I told my parents, who are immigrants, that I wanted to be in entertainment, they were very, very concerned because I'm their only daughter. I, you know, I'm, they're immigrants. Um, you hear about all these stories about the entertainment industry, you know, and there was no one that looked like me on screen. And I certainly didn't hear of any stories about a lot of minorities working, you know, behind the camera. So I really wasn't sure that the entertainment industry was for people like me, for me. What was it like for you when you sort of wanted to get into the entertainment industry? Because you didn't see anyone that looked like you. We both wanted to be white. I mean, did you think you could be able to break into yeah. the business? Yeah, I think this is one of those, uh, these are one of those moments where I'm thankful that I was kind of clueless. And <laughs> um, I mean, I definitely value my intelligence now more than I ever have in my entire life. But certainly growing up, um, I was not the smartest kid. So I didn't really have those thoughts of, okay, there's no one else there. I'm like, no, like I just hated school. Like I love the extracurricular stuff. I got really involved in clubs. I was student council president and everything, but I didn't like studying, which is why I never did well. So when I eventually did go to college, I just didn't like it because I didn't have that community aspect all of a sudden. And I was just looking for any excuse to not go to school. Okay. And so what it ended up being for me, because I had an agent for, for acting that I, you know, I didn't really take seriously, but it, he, he's always been there. And my mom introduced us like way back when. And I was very avid into martial arts. That was actually my main thing is I wanted to be a, a martial arts instructor. I wanted to teach eventually. Those things kind of worked together in that anytime I would 
find a, a, a job in the stunt community, if I got a stunt job, I could take off of school. Okay. <laughs> or if I got an acting job, I could take off of school. A couple of things that make that really easy is one, school for me was like $1,000 a year, which in Canada is not, I mean, it was average in Canada. I thought that was a lot. Yeah, no. Right. And, but like, and now I know how crazy the American prices are, (laughs) but one day on a stunt job or one day on an acting job would pay for the entire year of schooling. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to not take this job, mom, dad. It was really easy to justify. So I would just work really, really hard at getting these jobs because it meant that I wouldn't need to go to school that semester. It's a good plan. So for like four years, I was like school one, one semester, school off another semester. By the end of like four years, I'm like, all right, well, I did four years. Where's my degree? Right. And apparently I, I had no idea what a school, like what a program was. And we looked into it. Eventually I saw the advisor for the first time. I didn't even know what that was. Um, and I had a year and a half in marketing management. So I'm like, okay, I clearly don't understand this system. Why am I here? And I really look back I'm like, okay, well, the only thing I really kind of enjoyed doing was this like film and TV thing. So I'm just going to do that. And so I, I never really thought so much as to the viability of the career. I just thought of it as like, I literally hated everything else. So for me, there was no option. It's a good plan. (laughs) It was a really good plan. It was, uh, if I had thought of it, I would have probably done the same thing. But when you were doing it, did you realize how few Asians were on screen? Um, Again, I'd never thought of those terms. Like if you asked me back then, like what other Asian actors, I could probably name like two, but it wouldn't occur to me that there was a scarcity of it because it wasn't my main thing. And I think that's, that's probably, honestly, that probably helped because it wasn't my main thing. I wasn't so focused on these details. Every time it would come up, it would feel like, like a lottery. I'm like, oh, I get to play again. Let's see if I win. And so every time I got a job, it felt like, I'm like, oh yeah, I won the lottery, right? Like this never happens. This was a one, one and done thing. Like that's it. And then just like, as I kept going, because I kept trying and because I had all these other things keeping me going, like I never had to fully rely on it until the point, okay, I think this is something I want to take very seriously. And I really can't see myself doing anything else at this point. So I just got to go for it. And then I think that was just like the the right turning point where there was a couple of like big prominent roles that came up and I just happened to be the person that had it persevered through it. So, you know, it was um, in the right place at the right time and the right circumstances with the right people supporting me. I think that's really great. But let's let's also not discount uh, a lot of hard work and talent as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you got to you got to give my it that talent. Uh, if you're not going to say it, I'm I gonna... will say my talent was that I hated everything else, which honestly is is a talent in itself. Well, it worked for you. You turned a negative into a positive, Osric. So that's amazing. But you've done some really great shows and really great characters, some of them being Supernatural, Demon X, Dirk Gently. Uh, talk about being on some of these shows and sort of what that exposure and these parts allow you to do and what they mean to you. Um, I mean, Supernatural is, is obviously the big one. It, it, it kind of solidified my career in a sense, I mean, you, you never feel fully stable, but that was one of those first moments. During my second season, it was like, there's this big like moment where I'm like, oh my God, I think, I think I might be okay. Like it was one of those things I'm like, I have for the first time 
a regular job in this industry. And it brings me back home to see my family where I can tell them like, hey, I'm home, which means I have work again. You know, there were so many like things going for it. It was in Vancouver. They could see it. It, it was a really big moment where where I, I kind of felt like, yeah, this is going to work out. Of course, that's never the case. You, you know, I've definitely felt like, oh, that was my last job ever. And, <laughs> um, and you still feel that to this day. And I think a lot of people still feel that. But it was instrumental. It has this. It had this massive fan base that I never expected. I mean, this show kind of really shaped a lot of my life in terms of how I am as a performer, like how I operate on set, how I want to deal with people as an actor, as a producer, just watching everyone do their things. Like this is a well-run crew. This is how things could be if you set it up right. And so I think it it showed me a lot of what I would like to aspire to, like, let's say if I had my own show and how I would want to run my own things. I finally got a chance to really think about those terms if, you know, that opportunity happened. For Dirk Gently, that was another one. I loved that show. Um, I th- the writing was brilliant. The characters were great. I mean, this was definitely one of those things, like we were locked down into that show. I was a series regular and but the problem is there were so many series regulars that most of the time we had was off. And so I just kind of took that time to really develop uh, my own projects. I'm like, okay, well, now it's great. But at some point, I'm going to be like, the show's not going to go on forever. And at some point, I want to take things to the next level and do the do the other things, which meant like writing and developing. So like that year, I really started writing and developing my own projects. And certainly that's like my main focus today is just getting my own stuff off the ground. As much as I appreciate working on other people's stuff, like I get most excited for things that I have some creative input in. And I think finding your voice as an, as an artist, I mean, that was the most exciting thing for me. I'm like, oh, I know what I like now. And it took me so long to figure out what I liked and didn't like. It's such a simple thing, but I, I think for a lot of people that they don't even really think about because I had no idea for most of my career. I mean, a lot of people in their 50s don't know what they're doing so or why they're doing what they're doing. But going back to the shows that you're on, I mean, they're huge and high profile shows. But having a show like Supernatural, just taking that, for example, I mean, that skews pretty younger demographics for the most part, right? That show is like every generation. It's hard to say. <laughs> I think since it's gone on to Netflix, right. surely a lot of the younger generation has started to watch it. But like you go to the conventions and it's like mostly like 40, 50 year old, like family, like entire families. Like really? they have the grandma, the mom, the daughter, granddaughter, great granddaughter, like the entire family all watch the show together. I'm like, this is incredible. Like it's, it's so strange. That's awesome that your fan base has such a wide age range. Yeah. And all those people come from all different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but to have a show like that, that does have such a broad stroke of appeal to have an Asian character on it and, and such a great character. I mean, how cool was that? Like, what was the, some of the feedback that you've gotten from some audiences or fans that may have made you realize the impact that you had on them? Yeah, one moment really did it for me. When I started on Supernatural and, you know, like the whole thing blew up, you know, all of a sudden I had a fan base. I was a part of the show that so many people like hold to such high regard. And I started going around to all these conventions, meeting the people that watch the show, which was not something I had really ever done before. And you start hearing all of these stories of people 
that have like not only like fallen in love with the show, but like have gone through such hard times through this show. And they start telling you literally how you, your character in this show has changed their life and their outlook and the things that they've done. And sometimes so specific, you're like, holy crap, seeing the the change in the effect that you have on numerous people's lives was so powerful. There's this moment where um, there, there's a, a mother-daughter, forgot what it was exactly, but the mom's like, oh yeah, like she really needs to do this thing. And like, I keep telling her she really should do this thing. And I looked at it, I'm like, oh yeah, your mom's right. Like, yeah, you should really do the thing. And she's like, oh my God, okay, I'll do the thing. And, and she's like, I've been telling her for years. And it was just like, whoa, man, just like the fact that I just like agreed with her mom made her do the like the thing that she's been harping on her for years I'm like okay wow like that is some major power of influence there and like spider-man just rushed to my head I'm like wow with great power comes great responsibility <laughs> like I, at that point like i literally felt like a superhero like okay well you know what what do you do with you know this power now like you have to be responsible with it certainly representation is a big thing for me i'm like okay then it's up to me to kind of be part of that change. Because you start meeting all of these people, one thing that it really fostered was for everyone to find their voice. And we all have all these insecurities about ourselves. We all have these things that, you know, we're unsure of. But through these conventions, for whatever reason, it just kind of had this, it fostered a, this place and time where people can just ex be expressive of who they are, like the, the fan conventions. And for all of the guests attending, all of the actors, we started kind of feeding off of that energy and we would take chances. My favorite moment of this didn't even happen at one of these conventions. So I got nominated for my first acting award. Uh, it was the Leo Awards in British Columbia for the show Blood and Water. I got this email from my agent and he, he asked me, he's like, hey, I have a couple of the clients who are uh, nominated. You know, one of them's wearing Christian Dior, the other one's wearing Versace. Like, what are you wearing? I'm like, oh, I just flew into Vancouver, left my suit in LA. I'm like, man, maybe I'll wear a dress, like just as a joke. <laughs> and I had like worn like dresses and costumes and stuff at the Comic Cons. I guess to him, it, it wasn't a joke. It's like, oh my God, he could actually do this thing. And so he responds in the email in all caps, like, do not wear the dress. And I, and I just like let that sit in my mind for a bit. I'm like, I'm like, I wasn't going to wear a dress, but why should it be a problem to wear a dress? Right. Right. And I just asked that question, that simple question, like, why, why is it an issue to wear a dress? And I thought, I'm like, well, girls wear suits to premieres and stuff and they look super badass. I'm like, why can't a guy wear a dress at a premiere or something and look super badass in the opposite way? And so I just didn't respond. And like a week later, I get a call from my agent, my manager, my publicist and like, and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm at a dress shop. So I was trying to make a point to them where I'm like, I don't even want to wear a dress, but the fact that you think I can't means that I have to, right? Like, I just hate the idea of someone telling me I can't do something for reasons that I don't agree with. I'm like, okay. So I do the thing and, um, and it turned out wonderful. I had people literally coming up to me like, oh my God, I didn't know we could do this. Or like, I've been going, going to this event for like six years and like, this is just fun. Like, thank you so much. Like no one, like no one took offense to it. It was like actually a great icebreaker conversation starter. I won and like I did my speech and I, and my speech was very pointedly at my agent. <laughs> I'm like, I won for the show that probably most of you didn't see. Um, but let me tell you all the things 
of why I love the show. It's because they told us we couldn't make this happen. It was it's this traditional Chinese family that's going through like the most taboo subjects on local Canadian TV. Like it's never been done. They told us we couldn't make eight episodes with a budget of one episode. They told us we couldn't do a show with an all Asian cast. Like they told us all of these things that we couldn't do. And we just looked them in the eye and said, why not? And then I looked at my manager. <laughs> wait, that, it's had a really good moment. That's a great story. But wait, what show is this? And what did you actually wear? So this was called Blood and Water. And I wore a, a, a it was like a designer dress. It was uh, made by Emma Saval. She's a designer out of Florida. It was basically an acrylic painting. Um, and I got like hair and makeup done and everything. Like I, I whole nine yards. I took it to the next level. And the moment that really solidified it for me that it was the right choice is I, I got a message like, I don't know, like probably like two weeks later. And this mom messaged me uh, on Facebook or something. And she's like, hey, just want to let you know that my daughter, she really, really wanted to wear a suit to prom, but she didn't think she could. And so she wasn't going to go. And then she saw a picture of you in the dress and she decided to go. And I've never seen her happier in her life. Whole oh, life. my God. That's so great, Osric. Yeah. So it, it, it's those moments of like, OK, like you just have to stand your ground. Like if you have that moment of clarity, it's like, OK, I have to do this. I don't know if it's OK, but I know my reasons for doing it. I know my purpose. I know my why. And it's very clear to me. I don't know if it's accepted. Supernatural, that fandom has really kind of paved this way of of helping us as artists. Like they help us find the courage to do the thing, which helps them find the courage to do the thing, which in turn helps us find more courage to do the things. Like they've certainly built that kind of an environment where we just like, we're now like trained like, okay, I have to do that thing. And I know why. It's because I could inspire someone else to do the thing. When you got that email and you're reading it for the first time, how did that hit you? I mean, I didn't expect it to be that, but like, you know, I, I definitely had one of those moments like, oh my God, I didn't know I could affect someone in that way. You know, it's just really nice. I'm pretty sure I broke down in tears. Like I'm tearing up just thinking about it. But that really is so powerful. I mean, essentially you and this girl learn to stick to your guns and be yourself and you'll be happy. And I think going further, there's probably a lot of Asian American kids that see you on camera doing Supernatural and all of your other roles and um, see the possibility for themselves. So you're opening so many doors and being on high profile shows, you know, you're also um, exposing a lot of people that may not have seen too many Asian faces. And I think that is an incredibly powerful door that you're opening that you may not even realize. I, I mean, I've, I've certainly been learning it. I mean, this definitely ages me a little bit. Um, but I've had moments where I, you know, I meet these actors. Like, I have friends now. Like, actors who I regularly audition with. Right. Who, like, have come up to me, like, uh, when we first met, like, dude, you're like the only Asian face out there that I ever saw. Right. And like, I'm an actor because of you. I'm like, oh man, that is super cool. And so there's like a large number of Asian actors who I'm very good friends with now, who are my peers yeah. that I have in some weird way kind of been involved in their coming up to being actors. Isn't that incredible? The power of the platform that you have. Can you talk about how you're using this position that you have to create more of a community? Because I know you're active in or organizations and campaigns that work to break stereotypes. Yeah. What's the damage uh, for stereotypes and why it was important to 
combat that. I mean, it, it just reinforces that idea of that subconscious idea of what what is possible or not possible. Again, like I, I grew up thinking that I was not attractive as a fact. It wasn't even something you question. And it was like the same for all Asian people. And yeah, Asian people just aren't attractive. Like I never said said it in those terms, but that was the idea in my mind. Sure, sure. And what that does is it creates this imbalance in confidence. Here's a perfect example of when I like realized this. So I was sitting uh, at a table uh, at dinner with a couple of friends and I just, we started doing all these hypothetical questions. And I'm like, okay, if you had three years and in that three year time, you could do like one movie that has like a 95% success rate. Would you do that or would you do three movies, one a year for like a 50 or 60% success rate? Everyone at the table, except for one, said, I'd take the 95%. The one person who didn't say that was the only white guy. He said, well, no, three, 50%. And then I like, then I'm like, shit, we're supposed to be good at math. The 50% person wins every time, right? <laughs> and then like, I really thought about that. And I, so I started like talking to a couple more friends and I, I realized that like a lot of my successful friends, they just try. They have that confidence to try. They will try at 50%. Whereas for anyone in the minority, you feel like you have such a burden on your shoulders. You're like, okay, I'm 90% there. I'm going to take another year till I'm 95% there. And then you're 95% there. You're like, oh, you know what? I'm going to take another year and you'll get like 97% there. And then another year, 98% there. Like there's a point of diminishing returns. And what you forget is that there's going to be five other people that are all going to be trying at 50%. One of them is going to succeed or half of them are going to succeed. And then their next 50% effort is already starting above your 95% effort. Oh, okay. So it's that the opportunity that is lost on you because you're so afraid to try. And without that confidence, and this is part of representation, is that you're constantly telling you know, yourself that you're not capable, you're not ready for this, that you don't try. You know, and it's uh, like Wayne Gretzky said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And this is that. We don't take enough shots. And so when I realized that, I, you know, and I was absolutely a perfectionist for a lot of my life, I'm trying to shed that. I'm trying to get away from that. Like there's certainly projects that I pick where I'm like, okay, this is something I want to be perfect because this one needs to. But there's certainly a lot of projects like, okay, this doesn't need to be perfect. This just needs to be done. And then we can move on to the next thing. So I think it's prioritizing which you can be precious with and which you can't. That's a pretty humongous lesson. Yes. I mean, it, it was a lot of things. And, oh man, I can go on this for a long time. And another one. So when I realized that I had to use my platform for something. Yeah. A couple of years back before, before the community really came together, we were actually at war with each other in weird ways. You know, you'd go to the audition and we'd really talk to each other. We weren't supportive of each other. There was this idea that like, oh, like there's only one token Asian and I want to be that token Asian. It sucks, but you're right. You know, it, again, was never expressed in those terms, but that sentiment was there and it kind of like, you'd go to an event, you'd know everyone, but no one would really like talk to each other. You all know of each other, but it was weird. And then at some point it just flipped. And for me, there was this moment where I was, I was up for a big role. Like it, it was like a role of a lifetime and it was between me and this other guy that I knew and I had like beaten him out for another role before. And then when I, I got the role, it didn't go through. So no worries about looking it up. And, but the moment that I got the role, I had this thought like, okay, I wonder if this person that I just beat out would be able to support me when this movie comes out. 
And I thought, really thought about that. I'm like, okay, let's reverse the situation. If he got the role and I was watching, like, and I saw it coming out, like, would I be able to support him? And it was like, I would like in my head, I'm like, I want to, I want to, but I came to the clear decision that I like, I, I don't know if I could, it might be a no. And like, that really troubled me. And so I really thought of him, I'm like, oh man, what can I do? What can I do? And I realized like, okay, Osric, you have a platform. You have a voice that people are listening to. So again, you have a responsibility with that. And so what I ended up doing was I used, I started a YouTube channel and every single week I would kind of research another Asian endeavor performer, whatever. I would learn about them and then I would talk about them. And I would say, hey, this is an Asian American spotlight. And what it ended up doing, because I did it for over a year, I started learning about all these incredible people. I'm like, holy crap, like there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing more or better. And so like I fully like understood by that point. So I like actively just educated myself the merits of representation and why it was so important. And so the reason why I'm not still doing it is because at some point I realized like, okay, as much as I'm waiting for the next person in line to do the thing for us to like, you know, feed off the scraps, there's someone that's waiting for me to do the thing as well. And if we're always waiting for someone to do the thing, someone's got to break the train. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'm in a position where I can create, where I can write, where I can produce. Like, I want to do that. I would love to hire all my friends, but at the same time, that's just mathematically impossible. <laughs> so. Not only do I want to produce and write and create, but I want to help other people do that as well. So if I can help everyone create their own industries, then that's how we build, you know, the the talent pool. That's how we build the opportunities that are available for everyone to get better and better and better. I think you're a hundred thousand percent right. I think in the past there was um, a real sense of competition. And now recently there's been a huge shift in understanding and perspective that we need to help each other out and build each other up. So I also wanted to springboard off of something you just said and something that we talked about before we jumped on this podcast, um, that you're also going to be producing and creating content. So you're going to continue acting in all the things that you're doing on screen, but you're also going behind the camera. Can you talk about the importance of doing that? There's a growing amount of people in front of the camera. We still don't have enough. So, you know, we need everyone to keep at it. We need everyone to train themselves to be the best that we could possibly be. But on the other hand, we also don't have enough people writing the stories or directing these stories. If you can assume that most, a lot of writers are going to be writing from what they know and what they know are all these poorly represented versions of us in the media already, and we want to alleviate that, well, there's only like 250 writers in the WGA and of, of Asian descent, and maybe 50 of them are working. That's not enough. So we need to develop ourselves as creators so that we can start writing our own stories. When we're asking for representation, like, who are you asking from? Like, okay, can you write my story for me, please? Like, at some point, we have to realize that we are the ones that have to do the work. And we have to get to the point where we're good enough so that when we asked for that, they were like, oh, okay, well, how do we do that? Oh, here's someone that is really good at writing and is of that descent. Therefore, we can actually provide the thing that you're asking for. You know, so I think it's up to us to not only increase the demand, but increase the supply uh, and manufacturers of that content. So we have to be part of that change on every side of, of everything. That's why I really got into it because I'm like, okay, I've been around long enough. I'm not a writer, but I started teaching myself how to write. 
I wasn't a producer before, but I'm like, I'm just going to figure it out. Two years ago, I went to, to the Philippines with some friends um, and we made a movie, our first one. It was called Empty by Design. We premiered at the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. I mean, what that did was it just opened my mind into what was possible. And so at this point, I'm like, okay, well, I can literally do anything I want to now because there's nothing stopping me but me. Can you talk about how people who might not have the platform that you have, what they can do to contribute? Because I think it's critically important that we all realize that we all can do something. We have a responsibility to ourselves to not like cheat ourselves and, and do the things that really motivate and drive us, right? So if you happen to be on the storytelling side of things, then we have to be storytellers, whether it be acting, writing, producing, directing, whatever it is, we have to tell our own stories. I think everyone has to be a writer at some capacity. So anyone from anywhere in the world, write, write your stories, right? Uh, if you're, so if you're part of that pr like production and you want to be a storyteller and create that content, I think everyone needs to write their own stories because we, there's so many of them that aren't told ever. You know, and so we need to tell those stories. On the other side, if you're, you know, let's say you're, you did the, what our parents wanted me to do. Which was what? You're a doctor, you're, you're a optometrist, dentist, I don't know. If you're one of those <laughs> careers or anything else and you just want to support the community, you know, the only real vote we have in our culture is our wallets. So if you're working, you know, another job and you're buying a movie ticket to like The Farewell, you know, or like any of these independent movies that are supporting the artist, like that is a huge like trickle up effect where it, you know, you tell the distributors, you tell the studios that there is a demand for these kinds of stories, you know, watching, like, if you don't have the money on Netflix, there's so much Asian content now, if you're watching and buying and like leaving those impressions for our content, like that absolutely does help us, you know, sharing it to your friends. It really is a grassroots movement and it's up to us, the creators to create things that are worth watching. It's both like, but at the same time, like, because we want to accelerate this pace, we also want to support the people who aren't maybe quite there yet because most of Hollywood has had like over a century of practice and we're kind of just starting out. So we have to support ourselves as if we were student films sometimes and someone's going to come up with some amazing things, but there's going to be a lot of students who are still trying to get there and get better. So we have to kind of give ourselves some space to grow and to get better to the point where like everything we pump out is freaking amazing, but it's going to take some time to get to that point. And what I hope is for everyone to kind of allow our, our community that opportunity to learn. I mean, everyone, no one wants to put out junk. At the same time, we need to fail in order to succeed. So we have to give ourselves space to fail. Man, I love that. I could talk to you all day, but I know that I have to let you go. So sign us off, Osric. Let us know who you are and what you represent. Hi, my name is Osric Chow. And I represent the idea that there's always hope if you're just stubborn enough. Thanks to Osric Chow for hanging out, sharing his stories and thoughts with us. I really enjoyed my conversation with him. Keep up with him through Twitter. You can find him at Osric Chow. Rippin is available on all top podcast platforms, so you know. Subscribe, share, leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. You can always reach us. We have to try to find ways to find peace 
and art and love and connection in the midst of the chaos of life. So that's life writing. I am so excited to have comic and daily show correspondent Roy Wood Jr. Well, hello. That joke was birthed from my trip to the African-American Smithsonian in DC, which that was the first time I saw something where, all right, on this floor, it's nothing but good news. Mm. We've gone through slavery, we've gone through desegregation and emancipation proclamation and reconstruction, but on this floor, Beyonce, Michael Jordan, Issa Rae. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Come and join us on Life Writing for more stories like these and the tools writers need to make yourself the hero or heroine of the adventure of your life. Life Writing is available wherever you get your podcasts.